US attitudes to the royal race saga are revealed. A royal bombshell in Europe and Brits are being asked to the point of the monarchy. I'm Jack Royston, Newsweek's chief royal correspondent, and this is Newsweek's Royal Report. Hello listeners and welcome to the show and a happy new year to everyone. It took less than a month in 2023 uh, for it to become a completely extraordinary year in royal reporting. That was back when Prince Harry's book Spare was released and a lot of it was looking back at the past. And I want to kick off the Royal Report 2024 with another quick look back at some of the most explosive issue of the Harry and Meghan saga. So Newsweek asked a polling agency, which we use regularly, called Redfield and Wilton Strategies, to do some polling at the tail end of 2023 on how Americans feel about the royal race saga. Uh, so this is Meghan's allegations against the monarchy. She told Oprah in 2021 that there had been concerns and conversations about how dark her unborn child's skin might be. Now, I actually think there's some really interesting insights and data here, particularly on the generational divide. Um, but first of all, the headline figure, I'll, I'll recap the issue in a minute. The headline figure is that the majority of Americans think it's wrong to speculate about an unborn child's skin tone. But why that, that might sound in a way unsurprising, but actually the subtleties of this issue are where it becomes really important. So to recap, Megan not only said that it was concerns and conversations about her unborn child's skin tone, but she said if she was to reveal the name of the royal, that would be really damaging to them. The whole kind of framing that she offered was that this was obviously all incredibly serious. But then there was this question about whether it was concern or benign curiosity, as in, was it a fear about her child's skin being too brown, as suggested to Oprah, or was it purely a curiosity of the sort that is embarrassing when it, you know, but perhaps not unexpected from a grandparent of a mixed-race child? Um, and, you know, the big questions there are around whether there was open hostility in the heart of the monarchy, um, whether there was discrimination. So part of the reason we ask this now is because this has been the big royal scandal that closed out 2023 because Omid Scobie's book Endgame um, accidentally named King Charles as the royal who made the comment in its Dutch edition. So we now have a name. It's not been confirmed officially, but the book references letters exchanged between Charles and Meghan after Oprah. Crucially, though, the book also said no ill will was intended in the remark. And so this is the, this is the finer point, basically. This is the subtlety. Is it fine if there's no ill will? So our question asked by Redfield and Wilson was, is it acceptable or unacceptable to speculate about a child's skin tone? So we didn't use the word concern in our question. And 51% said it was not acceptable to speculate on the skin tone of an unborn biracial child, compared to 28% who said it was acceptable and 21% who did not know. So that is quite a clear, unambiguous backing of the idea that it's unacceptable. It's quite a stark figure. 51 is an outright majority. So that's kind of crucial line that's crossed. It is an outright majority of Americans. Um, but where I think this gets really interesting is actually when you look at the breakdown by age. So surprisingly, and it, it was surprising to me at least, the king's own generation were the most likely to say it was unacceptable, and that's the grandparent generation. 
So you might call boomers, for example. You're talking here about people who many of them will have their own grandkids and they will be looking at this issue through those eyes. Meanwhile, the millennials who were the most likely to actually have their own children were the most kind of uh, forgiving about all of this. So with, among boomers, among Charles' generation, um, 59%, so almost 60%, condemned speculation. And 20% felt that the remarks were acceptable. So that's almost three times as many people felt it was unacceptable. And in millennials, which our polling agency, Redfield and Wilton, um, defined as 27 to 42-year-olds, so Megan's, Megan's generation, just, she's 42, she's at the very upper limit of that age range. Among 27 to 42-year-olds, 39% felt that it was acceptable compared to 42% who felt it was unacceptable. So it's still more support for unacceptable, but very marginal. You've got to bear in mind there's a kind of margin of error of I think it's about 1.5% anyway. So it's virtually a split in public opinion among that age group who are of kind of prime age to either be getting pregnant like now or in the next few years or perhaps to have kids themselves. Um, the median age for US women to give birth, by the way, is 30. Uh, so I don't know whether, in some ways, that makes me feel weird, weirdly positive about it, although I suppose it's important to state that it really is very important not to make offensive comments about your incoming grandchild. But I, what I see here is an older generation that you can kind of almost see in the data that they've probably got some stuff wrong. Like maybe it wasn't in relation to race. Um, it could have been in relation to anything. Uh, but they've they've got stuff wrong. Uh, and maybe they're willing to admit that. You can, you can just kind of feel the embarrassment. Um, and dare I say it, maybe even guilt wafting off the page. Um, but... Uh, you know, it could have been, it might not necessarily have been race, it could have been anything from trans rights to colonialism, Black Lives Matter to any other issue on the social justice spectrum. And you can kind of imagine a generation of people who might have come out swinging on a controversial subject early on and lived to regret their remarks. And so now there they are uh, coming out early and trying to trying to pick the right path, which is why I suppose I say that it's positive, that you know, it fills me with some optimism, while at the same time, the generation of people for whom it would be their kids being commented on have the perspective to perhaps be forgiving of the generation above them. Um, but where it gets even more interesting is we also asked another question, which was about whether the royal uh, in question should be named. Like, obviously, Endgame accidentally named Charles, but that has not been confirmed. So, you know, we asked, should the palace come out and confirm who the royal in question was? And the overall verdict was that the individual should be named, but it was the percentages were smaller. So 42% were in favour of naming and 22% opposed. While interestingly, actually, it was millennials who wanted the names out there. And it was the grandparent generation who wanted to keep them secret. So the boomers are kind of looking at this issue, thinking, oh, goodness, that's awful that that comment was made. But also want to kind of keep it under wraps. They, they don't seem to believe in airing the dirty laundry, which is partly why I say perhaps they have some of their own past indiscretions in the back of their minds when they say that. But then the millennials have this kind of slightly more forgiving approach to the actual comment itself. But they want 
kind of full disclosure. They want the names out there. 60% of millennials wanted the names to be named, whereas among the boomers, just 19% supported identification of the royal in question compared to 35% who opposed it. So, you know, those numbers are really stuck. Again, almost three times as many millennials wanted to name names compared to boomers. And I guess that kind of feels true when you think about those generations. You know, the older generation are more discreet, whereas the millennials, I guess, are the first generation. They, you know, I, I fit into that category, full disclosure. And we were the first generation that really kind of grew up with people kind of calling themselves digital natives or whatever, which is a term I despise for what it's worth. And also used by many people for whom it is actually not true. But needless to say, it, that was our generation. We were young when social media came, you know, started when it came out. And we were the generation that overshared. <laughs> you know, that was what we did. We overshared everything, pictures all the time, all the rest of it. So it does make sense. But I suppose this is a royal podcast. So the big question is, what does this mean for the royal family? I mean, this is polling of America. Arguably, they would take more seriously polling of Britain. But also, America is a huge market for royal news. It's a very important market for Prince William's Earthshot Prize, which is why he's come to America several times recently. And I think it's, you know, it's unambiguous that whether it was deliberate ill will or not, America does not believe that it's okay to speculate about skin tone. I think, though, that they will maybe be somewhat encouraged by the fact that there's a degree of softness in that millennial response among the people who's, who, who are having children now. Like, I, there's two separate questions, I suppose. One is... Is it acceptable or unacceptable? And then the other question is, should one forgive? I think, you know, I have said previously that the royal family should name names now because that what that would do is it would allow them to cement their narrative that uh, it was not ill will, that it was curiosity rather than concern. So on the one hand, these figures slightly undermine my previous position because they show that people do still object even when it is curiosity rather than concern. But I still do also think, uh, and you can see it there in those numbers in relation to millennials, that there would be a degree of forgiveness around curiosity that simply would not exist for concern. So the royal family need to name the names because that allows them to go on the record with the, their version of events that it was curiosity rather than concern. And if they don't do that right now, then this issue will almost certainly come up again. It will be re-examined and reimagined and reinvented years from now. And the only thing that the public will have to go on, we love things we can watch. We love video clips. And the only thing people will have will be Megan saying uh, that it was concerns and conversations about her unborn child's skin tone. So that will be what resurfaces in years to come. So, you know, this is, I was fascinated by all of this. I think it's, it's really interesting. And it, I, I view it in the context of the fact that Omid's book really kind of injected some new energy into debates around the royal family. And what that showed me is that this is still very much a live issue in people's imaginations. It was the big take home 
from the Oprah Winfrey interview, whatever Harry and Meghan might now say about whether they didn't intend that, uh, it was the biggest take home from the Oprah Winfrey interview, and it always will be. That is that I suppose is my headline here: is this will always be the issue from the Oprah interview, and the Oprah interview will always trump the other things that Harry and Meghan did in in years to come when people look back. It will trump the Netflix documentary, and it will trump Harry's memoir, Harry's book, Spare. And the reason it will trump those two things is because it came first. And because it came first, it's created the narrative, it created the drama, it, it created the interest. It was the original uh, manifestation of the Harry and Meghan perspective, and this was its centerpiece. So we don't know whether Harry and Meghan are ever going to go back to their time as working royals. They've kind of, the noises coming out of Camp Sussex are that they won't. And Omid's book Endgame also suggests that they're not going to return to the past. But for the royal family, they might not actually have a choice. Harry and Meghan have the choice about whether they return to this issue or not. The royals, it could easily blow up in their faces again in years to come. And if it does, they need to be ready to deal with it. And on that note, I'm going to take a quick break. But before I do, don't forget to rate and review us on Spotify or Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your favourite shows. When I'm back, what will the abdication of Princess Margaret of Denmark mean for Britain's royals? Hi everyone and welcome back to the show and what a New Year's Eve it was in Denmark as Danish people gathered with friends and family around the country to see in the new year the country's monarch issued what must have been one of the most dramatic public broadcasts of her 52 year reign so this all happened at 6pm so like you know just when you're getting into your into your groove you've got the Prosecco open you've got dinner probably coming in about an hour um, and she announced out of nowhere in what it was everybody thought was going to be a routine speech that she was abdicating the throne and would by mid-January be replaced by her son, Crown Prince Frederick. And the videos on social media, I think, are actually probably the most interesting, most interesting thing about this. They showed Danish people just completely losing it at dinner parties and parties all around Denmark. Um, whether, they were just expecting the usual New Year speech because that's the tradition in Denmark in the same way as the British royal, British king or queen when it was Elizabeth um, have the Christmas broadcast. They have a New Year one. So people were all sat around. They had their wine out or whatever. And um, Queen Margareta said, in February this year, I underwent extensive back surgery. It went well, thanks to the skilled healthcare staff who took care of me. Of course, the operation also gave rise to thinking about the future, whether the time had come to leave the responsibility to the next generation. I have decided that now is the right time. On 14 January 2024, 52 years after I succeeded my beloved father, I will step down as Queen of Denmark. I leave the throne to my son, Crown Prince Frederick. So, first of all, Margareta was the Queen Elizabeth II of Denmark. Um, obviously, 52 years is a long time, and a great many Danes will have never known another monarch. She also spoke previously about how much the British Queen's attitude influenced her. So Elizabeth famously, you know, one of her most famous speeches was on her 21st birthday when she said she would give her whole life to public service. And she made good on that pledge. But that particular promise seemed to resonate with Margareta. And she had said that um, it it had had an impact on her. Um, So it was a huge surprise when she then went on to abdicate. 
There's been a theme in the UK papers that some royal gossip about the marriage of her son, um, Crown Prince Frederick, may have been a factor, um, and that this was some kind of like high-stakes, dramatic move to save the Danish monarchy. Though some people have also suggested those theories uh, should be taken with a pinch of salt, and it does seem a little wild to me. I mean, it would definitely be a very high-stakes gamble to try to... I suppose the idea would be, you know, save a marriage by locking it in as king and queen. I mean, honestly, the queen's actual explanation that her health has been struggling and that that's, therefore she doesn't want to do what Queen Elizabeth II did and, and just go on and on and on and on and on, that does seem very simple and straightforward to me, whereas the other is a bit of a conspiracy theory. Um, one interesting aspect of this, though, is that there will not be a coronation in Denmark. They don't do that kind of thing in Denmark. He, he's just going to be announced or proclaimed king, and then that's it. Um, so that begs the question, well, if it's fine for Denmark to have no coronation and the monarchy still survives, then was Britain right to have this really expensive and lavish coronation? Estimates in the days leading up to the king's coronation in May put the price tag at around £100 million, which is about $126 million. Uh, so is that value for money? I mean, we are in a cost of living crisis, and I'll, I'll never forget, a um, there was one caller to a popular radio station called LBC in Britain, uh, who I think it was one or two, maybe two years ago, rang up... Um, in tears, crying, because he thought he was going to die, because he couldn't pay for his heating and it was freezing. It must have been either last winter or the winter before. And, it, you know, it's it's serious. It's It's been really serious in Britain. So should this be scrapped when the time eventually comes for Prince William to become King William? Um, now, I can see this argument from both sides. So on the one hand, I do think that these big, high-profile public events are part of what people love love about the monarchy. Um, it's not just coronations, it's royal weddings, royal babies even, and jubilees, and moments where people can people in Britain can come together, throw street parties, have friends round, and celebrate, and just feel straightforwardly proud uh, of their country, but also feel a sense of connection to the country they live in, and the society they live in. I think that's probably the biggest thing that the, the royals give to Britain. I'll, I'll be talking a little bit more about that in the next segment, actually. Um, but on the other hand, uh, when I was reporting on the coronation, I remember speaking to people who said the hotels were actually not overrun with people from abroad, because that's the other aspect of this, is, is, is that these events are supposed to bring huge numbers of tourists into Britain, and with that, they're supposed to bring you know huge amounts of money. And so then you kind of would expect all the hotels in London to be overrun. And I remember people saying it actually wasn't hard to book rooms. So that kind of suggests the influx into London might not have been as big as you might imagine. I do also think, though, that these kind of big set-piece events, they often get a huge amount of TV coverage in America. And that is whether people come for the coronation or not, that is still an advert for Britain that puts Britain in people's minds. But there's also the kind of overall appearance of the whole thing, because obviously wealth and privilege have gone fast out of fashion in recent years, and here you have a guy rolling around in a gold carriage with a dizzyingly expensive hat that could no doubt bankroll a struggling family probably for life. So is that still fine in the modern world? Do we still think that's a good thing? 
It's a question that's kind of impossible to answer in relation to the decision about the next coronation because that decision is being taken right now. And we don't know when the next coronation will be unless, you know, if the king were to abdicate next year. And he almost certainly won't. But let's say, for argument's sake, that Charles were to give it all up in 2024. I don't think William could have another big extravaganza so soon after the last one. Because you've got to bear in mind, it's not just hot on the heels of King Charles's coronation. It's also hot on the heels of the Platinum Jubilee the year before. And I think it would just feel to British people like we've done this too many times. But that's now. It could be totally different in 20 or 30 years' time. So let's say the reign of Charles continues for 30 years. Well, anything could be happening in the country then. You know, like maybe robots will all be doing our jobs for us and we'll all just be lounging around the house while, you know, some AI goes and uh, writes stories for Newsweek and speaks on TV segments about the royals. You know, if if that's my life, if I'm living on a beach in the Caribbean drinking cocktails while an AI does my job for me, I might be perfectly willing to have an incredibly lavish and expensive coronation ceremony. But it just depends whether that's the future or not. I mean, the future could be anything. The future could be completely opposite. It could be dystopian. It could be as, you know, all our jobs have been taken away from us by robots and we're dispensable. It could be anything. Um, interestingly, I was talking to Graham Smith, who's the chief executive of anti-monarchy campaign group Republic, who said he thinks there'll be other abdications and successions in Europe in the coming years, which will also not include coronations. Um, and he reckons that will reflect badly on the British monarchy. Um, meanwhile, I also spoke to Ingrid Stewart, who is the author of Royal Book, Prince Philip Revealed, and um, she actually also thought the public didn't fully grasp some of the coronation rituals. And that it went over some people's heads. And she told me she actually also thinks that um, May's ceremony will be the last of its kind. Um, so that I was surprised, actually. I expect Ingrid to say that it was fantastic and it will happen again. But that was not her view. And if you want to read more on that, you can find that story on Newsweek. In the meantime, I'm going to take one more quick break. But before I do, a reminder to follow me on X or Twitter, as I still routinely call it. I'm at Jack underscore Royston. You will find all my latest stories for Newsweek. When I'm back, what is the role of Britain's monarchy? Hi everyone and welcome back to the show. The British government is preparing to carry out a mega poll which will sample 175,000 people and it includes questions on the monarchy alongside a wide variety of other subjects. So it's kind of like what I think is sometimes called an omnibus poll where there's just like loads of questions on loads of things. Um, So anyone who follows me on Twitter or who listens to this podcast regularly will know that I love polling. Um, The reason I love it is just because of the number of instances where people get locked in a mindset about public opinion that just is not true. Sometimes people get stuck in a perspective that was true once without realising that the public have moved on. Um, Actually, you you get quite a lot of that in UK royal royal reporting right now because people think the crash in Harry and Meghan's standing in America is still in full effect, whereas actually a lot of Americans have snapped back to liking them again. Um, So that's just one reason we keep polling regularly at Newsweek to look at the pattern of how public opinion changes over time. So this mega poll is by far the biggest I've come across in recent years, and it will ask people quite an interesting question, namely, what should the role of the British royal family be in modern society? So that's not what is the role, but what the role should be. In other words, it's a matter of opinion rather than, you know, trying to uh, work out whether people understand the situation as it is now. 
Um, and they will be invited to select a multiple choice answer, but they can only choose one. So in reality, people aren't going to realistically be able to throw in wild, curved ball answers that nobody saw coming. You know, the choices available are pretty much the spectrum of functions that the royal family actually possess currently. Um, this was all reported by the Mirror, who a newspaper in Britain, tabloid newspaper in Britain, who suggested that participants are going to be offered ten, a £10 voucher if they take part. Um, so assuming that that is going to cost the government £10 per participant, that alone is going to cost £1.75 million. Pounds. So it's going to be an expensive poll. The answers on offer are fairly predictable. They cover the the real life functions of the monarchy. So you're you're talking about um, stuff along the lines of to undertake a constitutional role as head of state, such as opening each new session of parliament. That's its kind of formal official function to support and encourage public services and charitable sectors, and to recognise and support the armed forces, or su- or you know the king has a role as supreme governor of the Church of England. Um, and there's also, if I remember correctly, one along the lines of kind of uniting the country, um, which is actually the one that I think is the most important. And that one reads, to provide a sense of continuity and act as a focus for national identity, unity and pride. So we're expecting to get the results in the summer and it could be a wake-up call for the royals. Specifically, it's just going to tell them what the public actually care about in terms of the things they're trying to do. And that could help to kind of shine a guiding light for which direction they need to go down. Um, so, for example, past polls that have covered similar terrain, but surveying fewer people, have suggested good scores for uniting the country, performing constitutional functions and charity work, um, but very low scores for some other things, like the King's role at, uh, with the Church of England and with the armed forces, and also hand, his role handing out honours. Um, so what then does the monarchy do? Well, if you want my view, the single thing the public looks to them for most of all is this role which is about uniting the country and kind of generally spreading positivity, which they do during major events like, you know, your royal weddings, your coronations, your jubilees, also the birth of royal babies, you know, all the stuff that if you're listening to this podcast, you probably tend to find quite interesting to discuss and debate. Um, essentially, if, if Britain was to abolish the monarchy, we would have a democratically elected president as well as a prime minister, probably closer to France than America. But, um, you know, that's all detail for another day. The point I'm making, though, is that the president would represent a political party. There would be a partisan political figure. So you would have half the country who hated them and another half of the country who liked them. And what the royals are supposed to do is create this space where people can have an uncomplicated celebration of Britain, what it means to be British, their relationship with their country and the society that that they're part of that is free from political arguments. So somebody might hate the government, they might hate this government, they might hate the last government, they might hate politicians in general. But the idea is they can still have this space where they have a positive idea of themselves and their country and their relationship with the centre of things, you know, their relationship with the place where everything happens. Of course, that is in itself all becoming increasingly debatable because young people in Britain are turning away from the monarchy. And they appear to increasingly want to view uh, the royal family through the prism of privilege and its uh, historic ties to colonialism or you know, Prince Andrew or, you know, Harry and Meghan, and, and, and that all makes it much more controversial. Um, so then there's the kind of formal constitutional function of the monarchy, which comes in different shapes and sizes. 
the king technically has to sign off every piece of law, for example, that passes through Parliament, but it is largely a rubber stamping exercise. Um, and if the king were to ever actually refuse to uh, give royal consent to a law, then that would cause a, a constitutional crisis. Um, so it's, it's you know it's not happening. It's not realistically going to happen. Uh, if it did, it could lead to the abolition of the monarchy. Um, but more visible to the public is the state opening of parliaments. This is a ceremony that takes place at the beginning of every new parliamentary session. Um, and the king reads the king's speech, which outlines the agenda of the government of the day. Uh, Charles actually did his first state opening of parliament quite recently in November. Um, then there's the charity work that the royals do. So this is all supposed to be about leading by example. You know, they kind of show the rest of the country what it means to be a good selfless citizen, uh, putting others first and showing up for people in need. Um, and in fairness, a significant amount of charity work is no doubt done by the great and the good of British society out of their desire to be knighted or, you know, to bask in the reflected glory of the royal family. Um, and, uh, you know, I'm sure that that therefore does mean that the royals help to kind of stimulate and generate all of these good deeds done by other people and charity donations and all the rest of it. But ultimately, whether you actually think the British royals have a role in modern society or not is totally a matter of opinion. Um, <clears throat> past surveys of this kind have also included an option along the lines that don't know. Um, and I think in one of them, it would be around 20% of people actually picked the don't know option. So given that obviously the answers are right there on the page in front of you, I think it's probably safe to assume that don't know kind of probably also means don't care in a lot of cases. Um, and that would probably be the worst result for the king is if there was a very high percentage of don't knows or don't cares. And that would suggest a kind of growing dissatisfaction with the monarchy and the role it performs. But we will, of course, simply have to wait and see. The summer is when we're expecting the, the results to come back. So if it all comes in and it's interesting enough, I will endeavour to include it in the Royal Report and then I will give you my take on it as well. And that is it for this week's episode of the Royal Report. Welcome to 2024. Be sure to join me every week when I will visit the latest royal headlines, embark on some royal deep dives and riff on all things royal. Until next time, I'm Jack Royston. Thanks for listening, everyone, and a curtsy to you all.